All right, welcome. Everybody in the back, you can come have a seat. Um, all right, this semester we have been studying through eschatology, right, the doctrine of the end times, the last things, everyone's uh, favorite subject. And then the past three weeks, we've been kind of doing a little mini-series on the millennium, right, these kind of millennial views, pre-mill, uh, Jeff talked about two weeks ago, last week, Zachary talked about all millennialism, uh, and this week we'll be finishing with kind of the third view, post-millennialism. So... Before we actually jump in, I want to revisit Revelation 20, the passage that's giving us all these fun discussions. So Zach kind of talked last week about if you become a Christian uh, and out of your joy, you just want to read the Bible, right? So you open the Bible, you would be reading and you would be thinking, wow, this is so great. Jesus came, he died for my sins, he rose from the dead, right? Conquering sin and death, he ascended, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, and one day he will return, he will judge his enemies, and we'll have the eternal state, right? We'll be with him. It's that simple. He went, he's going to come back, judge his enemies, eternal state, and you'd be keep reading, uh, and you would get to the last book of the Bible, and you would still think that, and then you would get to like the third to last chapter and read this random paragraph that talks about this thousand-year pre-reign reign of Jesus with resurrected believers and all these different things, and you immediately have to wrestle with something right before you finish the entire Bible that kind of throws a wrench into your entire idea. So let's read Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hands the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority, uh, authority was given to judge. Uh, also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Uh, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Then, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations uh, that are at the four corners of the earth. So, there you go. There's the millennial passage. Now, uh, the two main factors that cause the debate between these three views, pre-mill, all-mill, post-mill, are about the order and the nature of this millennium. Okay, how are these things going to happen and when are these things going to happen? Okay, is Jesus, when does Jesus come back in relation to the millennium? Does he come back before or after, right? Pre or post? Right? Uh, when he comes back, would immediately bring in this kind of eternal state, or is this kind of uh, millennial reign in between Jesus coming back and the eternal state? Uh, this millennium, is it literal or figurative? Is it current? Is it happening now? Or is it something that's going to come in the future? Is it earthly? Or is it heavenly? Is it something that's occurring with Jesus physically being here uh, on the earth? Or is it something where he's reigning from heaven? So all these questions, all of these debates center around those two ideas. What is the order of these events? And then what is the nature of the millennium itself? So let's just kind of review. So Jeff, two weeks ago, talked about premillennialism. Uh, he covered historic or classical, same thing, pre-mill, uh, which is the idea that there's this church age, then this tribulation, uh, then Jesus will come back, uh, believers will be raised, and then they will reign with Christ for a thousand years, with Jesus physically on the earth. And after this millennium, uh, there will be the resurrection of uh, unbelievers, final judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth. So Jeff talked about that two weeks ago. Um, this was the dominant view in the early church. Uh, there were some people who held to Amil as well, uh, but pr a historic pre-mill is kind of the dominant view in the early church. Jeff also covered dispensational pre-mill, which is a much later view that shows up kind of in mid-19th century. Uh, the main difference besides the order is kind of the purposes of Israel uh, between these two. They share the same name, but they're drastically different. Uh, and then last week, 
Zacharyth uh, covered Amil, uh, this idea that there is no literal uh, future millennium, but rather Revelation 20 is just referring to the church age, what's happening now. Uh, Amil is what you are uh, if you stop reading the Bible at Revelation 19. <laughs> That's what you would be, right? Jesus is going to come back and he's going to bring in the eternal state. This, Amil, has been the dominant view for the majority of the church. Uh, Augustine, through the Middle Ages to the Reformers, the majority of the church held to Amil. And we've talked about these past three weeks, what you believe uh, about the millennium, any of these views that you hold is not essential to your faith, right? It's not the Trinity, but it is important. It is important. It does affect your worldview. We'll see that today. It does affect how you view change in the world, how you respond to uh, societal trends and things like that. It can affect your hope, right? Our ultimate hope is obviously uh, set on Jesus, but if you're expecting the world to either get better or worse and then you see something that goes against that, it can kind of affect your immediate hope. So it's not essential, uh, but it is important. So, Let's jump into post-millennialism. Timothy, will you put up the wonderful slide that you made for us? Wait for it. Waiting. There it is. Look at, that is uh, created by the Timothy Hollis. Look how great that is. Okay, so the post-millennial position holds that the church age leads to this kind of golden millennial age, and then Christ returns after or post the millennium, everyone will be resurrected at Christ's return, and then there will be the eternal state. Christ returns after this millennium. So the millennial kingdom is something that is experienced on the earth prior to the return of Christ. So postmills hold that the gospel will go forth in power, will convert the unconverted more and more and more. The church will continue to grow. Notice the tiny church and then the giant church. Uh, The church will continue to grow until the majority of the world's population is Christian. Then when Christians have uh, a significant influence on society, there will be this kind of golden millennial age of peace and righteousness where society is shaped by God's laws and standards, right? So through the church, God will Christianize the world, right? Bringing about this millennial age. And then at the end of the millennium is actually when Christ is going to physically return. There's going to be resurrection, judging, new heavens and new earth, the eternal state after that. But all that comes after the millennium. So it's important to see that this church age leads into the millennium. They're not the same thing. And there's actually three kind of different main views within uh, post-mill of when the millennium either has begun or will begin. Uh, the first view is that the millennium actually begun at Jesus' ascension. So the church age is only really 40 days in between the resurrection and Jesus' ascension. Uh, we've been in the millennium since then. Another view is that at the destruction of the temple, 70 AD uh, is when the millennium starts. So you have this kind of 40 years that parallels the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, uh, this 40 years of the church age, then the destruction of the temple, and we've been in the millennium since then. The main view that's held, uh, has been held historically with guys like Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans is that the millennium hasn't come yet. We're still in the church age now, and we're looking forward uh, to the millennium that is to come. So let's talk a bit more about uh, the nature of the millennium itself. That's kind of the overview just of the order, church age, millennium, Jesus, eternal state. But the nature of the millennium itself is actually the biggest difference. So it can be misleading when you just read the name, post-millennialism. Uh, you might think that's what makes post-mill the most distinct, the fact that Jesus just comes after the millennium. But there's another view. What other view does Jesus also come back after the millennium? Amel, which is a little confusing because there's no actual literal millennium in Amel. But Jesus comes back after this millennium in both of those views. The biggest distinctive of post-mill is actually the nature, what the millennium will be like. So it's kind of like church planners today when they're naming their church, you can't name something like Presbyterian Church of McKinney. That's like a death wish. How boring is that? You have to have something like 
Thrive Church or something like Flame House Church or whatever, like it has to be. That doesn't really tell you anything about the church's beliefs. All that really tells you is that the pastor probably wears shirts two sizes too small, right? So it doesn't really tell you anything about what the church believes. That's kind of like just seeing the name Post Mill that doesn't tell you the biggest distinctive of the belief, which is the nature of the millennium itself. So the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ in the Post Mill position Uh, is a millennium experienced on the earth that comes through the Christianizing effects of the gospel. So life carries on as normal, right? There's birth, there's death, there's health issues, there's marriage, there's sin, things like that. It's life like now, just a more Christianized life, right? So that's the millennial reign. Now compare that to pre-mill and you'll kind of see the dramatic difference, right? The millennium in Pre-mill is a uh, millennium worth with Christ physically here, reigning with glorified believers in their resurrected bodies, right? Christ is actually physically present in pre-mill. Uh, believers are glorified and in their resurrected bodies and living there. Whereas post-mill, it's just a really, really, really Christian world, right? Jesus isn't here yet. Those are two dramatically different Right, post-mill, the millennium comes through gradual conversion as the gospel advances and the world gets better and better and better. In pre-mill, the world's actually getting worse and worse and worse, but then Jesus is going to return and fix everything. You see those two kind of dramatically different ideas. That's the biggest uh, distinctive between the two. Uh, so uh, this type of millennium, pre-mill millennium, with Jesus physically here, believers being glorified, doesn't really happen until the eternal state in post-millennialism, right? This is all going to happen before he returns. Okay, so those are dramatically different. And so, thinking about that kind of distinctive uh, leads to this key characteristic of post-millennialism. The key characteristic of the post-mill position is a very, very optimistic perspective, it's kind of positive view of the church and the world, of kind of where uh, the future is going, right? Uh, this very optimistic view that the gospel is going to go forth, uh, it's going to change lives, it's going to change hearts, more and more people are going to be converted, right? And, and then the church is going to grow and grow and grow, right? This is going to happen. This is where the future is going. No matter how bad it looks right now, the millennium will eventually come as the gospel goes and has great victory over the hearts of the people, right? So the gospel is going more and more and more. Now, compare that, that positive perspective, to kind of the pessimistic perspective of pre-mill and amill, right? Pre-mill and amill both think the world's not getting better. It's actually getting worse and worse and worse. But again, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to bring the ultimate victory, right? So this kind of pessimistic view is where we get like the grandparent sayings. So like my grandma would say things like this world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? This idea is just getting worse and worse and worse. Or my grandfather, who's a pastor, uh, Jeff mentioned him and his He's like, what view? There's the Word of God and then there's Mickey Mouse stuff, right? That guy. He would talk to me and he would say, man, I'm glad God's about to take me home. Man, this world is just going worse and worse. Son, you want to be in the ministry? You better gear up. It's getting real bad, right? And that's, so both of those kind of grandparent sayings reveal this very pessimistic, negative view of where the world is going uh, with the ultimate hope of Jesus coming and fixing all that bad stuff, right? And I want to clarify, I don't mean negative in the sense that they believe the gospel's weak or God isn't strong enough to save people, uh, but rather they would say, they wouldn't say we have a negative perspective. A pre-mill or an amill would say we have a realistic perspective based on how the Bible describes uh, where the world is going, right? So they don't, they don't think the gospel is weaker than a post-mill would, but they think the world is just going to go this way because that's how the scriptures describe it. So again, two dramatically different worldviews. Post-mills are incredibly optimistic uh, of the power of the gospel. So if you're a post-mill and you look out into the world and you see uh, what looks like Christianity having a really, really strong influence on society, you might think, okay, there we go. The millennium maybe is close, right? When you see uh, like Billy Graham's ministry, Uh, This farmer from Charlotte who's preaching the gospel to millions and millions of people, not just in America, but all over the world. And on top of that, he's like best friends with every president, 
right? You might think, okay, Christianity is gaining a pretty strong foothold. Or, as of the last couple weeks, when you see people in Hollywood proclaiming faith like Kanye or Shia LaBeouf or Bieber or whoever, you might think, okay, in the most wicked, uh, wickedly immoral place, Hollywood, where Christianity is gaining a foothold, right? I would, uh, by the way, be totally on board with a Christianized Hollywood. We might get some good Christian movies, but right now we're stuck with, like, God is not dead seven and stuff like that, okay? So, Hopefully, Kanye can get it done. But you would have that kind of view. When you see positive things, you would think, okay, the millennium might be close. Similarly, if you see negative things, you have this expectation that the world is getting better, and you see negative things, you might think, okay, the millennium's not close. When I first became a Christian, I loved listening to any sermon where the guy was yelling. So I loved like Paul Washer because he just yells at everyone all the time. Uh, and there was another guy named Leonard Ravenhill that I listened to all the time who was post-millennialist and he would yell at his people and say, you think Jesus is coming back tonight? You forget it. He's not coming back tonight because the gospel has got to be preached to all nations and look at the world. Look how horrible it is. The millennium's nowhere near close. He's not coming back. Right? So he thought, yes, the world's going to get better, but it's not right now. So the millennium's not close. Right? So his worldview was totally shaped by this optimistic perspective. So that's the main distinction, this hope that this millennium is going to come as the gospel goes and conquers, as the unbeliever is converted and turns to the Lord. That's the key characteristic of postmillennialism. And eventually this kingdom will come. It will bring in this millennial reign of peace before Christ returns. Let's look at some of the main arguments from scriptures. So uh, some of these are stronger than others. We'll talk about strength and weaknesses in a little bit. First argument, post-millennialists see the millennial kingdom uh, as being fulfilled by many of the promises in the Old Testament, right? So God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation and all the people of the earth, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Right? Some of the Psalms talk about this day when the nations shall turn to God and worship him. Psalms 22 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. We see similar ideas in Psalms 67 and Psalm 102. There are several prophetic passages that seem to talk about uh, this day when the nations will come and desire to worship the Lord. Micah 4 it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountain, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see that identical passage in Isaiah 2, and then something similar in Habakkuk 2 as well, this idea of the nations turning and worshiping the Lord. A second biblical argument, uh, the strongest in my opinion, uh, is that the Great Commission and Acts seem to point to this gospel going forth uh, in great power to all nations, right? So Jesus explicitly says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So a postman would say, Christ has all authority. He commissions his people go and what? Make disciples of who? All nations, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. And I'm going to be with you right? Shouldn't the church expect success, expect victory of actually doing that, right? The nations turn you to the Lord, right? Jesus is with us. And more than that, in Acts 1.8, right before Jesus ascends, he says to the apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, not only has Jesus commissioned them to go make disciples of all nations, but then he gives them God, right, the Holy Spirit, as the power to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, right? So Postman would say, you should expect great victory, right? Jesus has given you this commission and then given you the Holy Spirit to be the power to do this. See a similar idea in, in Matthew 16 after Peter makes the great confession that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says, uh, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What are gates for? 
Yeah, keeping people out, right? So who's on offense in this scenario? The church, right? Jesus is saying the church is going to go and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Which, by the way, a post-mill would say uh, the world is got, has gotten more Christian. Some would say they have gotten more Christian, right? Even in times of great persecution, uh, the church spreads more than ever. And society has gotten better. We've got less slavery, less polygamy, right? Things like that. We don't die of plagues all the time now, right? Medical advancements have happened. Zach always says, when people ask me what time period I would love to live in, now, right now, always, because you don't just die from a cut on your arm or something like that, right? Society has gotten better, many post-mills would say. Um, And then the third argument from Scripture uh, would be parables of gradual growth of the kingdom, Matthew 13. And he, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it is all leavened. So again, a postman would argue that this seems to talk about the kingdom of God kind of permeating the whole world until it uh, turns and follows God. This idea of the kingdom of God also shows up in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. It said, Jesus, uh, let me teach you how to pray. What does he say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So they would say, why would Jesus say, pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven if he really knew that's not going to happen until his second coming anyway? Right? Why would Jesus tell us to pray that way if, there, again, there wasn't this expectation of success, this optimistic view of the gospel's power for God's kingdom to come? So those are kind of the main biblical arguments, again, all centering around that positive perspective of the gospel going forth. So that's kind of the position as a whole. Uh, It's trajectory, order, nature with the biblical arguments. Now I kind of want to look at uh, post-millennialism throughout the history of the church when it's been most popular and things like that. So the past few weeks we've mentioned that it doesn't really, it's not really a dominant player until the 17th century. That's true. Uh, That doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. We are Protestant and justification by faith isn't really a dominant player until the 15th century, right? So just because it shows up late to the party doesn't mean it's immediately wrong, but that is kind of the reality. Um, The 17th century, when it does show up through kind of the early 20th century is the heyday of Postmillennialism. It is the dominant view within the Protestant church, especially in America. And the main people we see start to kind of spread it in, in the 17th century are the Puritans, men like John Owen. So the Puritans are this group that come out of the Church of England uh, after the Reformation who want to purify the church. That's where you get the name. They want to purify the church. We've uh, reformed, we've broken off from the church of the Antichrist, the Catholics, and now we're going to keep reforming, right? We're going to keep on purifying the church more and more. We're going to have holy doctrine. We're going to follow God's word. This is the Puritan hope. And so post-millennialism fits right in that positive idea. The church is going to continue reforming. And then many of the Puritans come over to this new world, right? Where not only is the church going to be purified, but we are are going to have a Christian society in this new world. This, these uh, colonies established by the Puritans that submit under God's law, right? This post-millennial optimistic view uh, perfectly fits in with this, where this Christian society can thrive. And I have a quote here from Mark Jones in his book, a Puritan Theology. Uh, Amid the trying times of the 17th century England, the Puritans began to break from historical Augustinian doctrine, Amel, uh, to formulate a new, more optimistic future for the church. This optimism, developed by numerous Puritan writers, became the backbone of the the New England settlements. And their their society would serve as a city on a hill, calling Old England to repentance and ushering in the future millennia with all its hopes." This optimism overflowed into the everyday lives of the Puritans and influenced the ministry of the church, especially in mission outreach to the Indians and society and personal piety. So not only is there this high view of our Christian society, there's also this massively high view of missions, 
right? The gospel's power when post-mill becomes the dominant view, and you see this huge surge of missions in the 17th century. Men like William Carey, the father of modern missions, who goes to India because he has a post-millennial view that the gospel is strong enough to save, to convert the nation of India, right? So there's this huge high view of missions and this great hope that God will transform all throughout the 17th century. And then we go from uh, the 17th century to Jonathan Edwards in the 18th, right? He's coming from this Puritan heritage. He lives still in this uh, Puritan world of this Christian society. But then what else is happening during Edwards' day? Anybody know? I think I have it written right there on the heading. First Great Awakening, yes. So not only does he live in this society where you essentially have to be a member of a church to function as a member of society, but he's also seeing this mass revival, right? As he himself is preaching, people are just crying out to God, right? They're repenting and they're even signing covenants that they want to follow God's laws. He's seeing this First Great Awakening and he looks at this and says, this must be the dawn of the glorious day of the millennium, right? And he believed this awakening, this revival, was going to radiate out to the entire world. He believed it was the foretaste, not the millennium itself, but the foretastes of the millennium. And important to see with Edwards, in good Calvinistic fashion, uh, he believed that God was doing this, right? God is doing this by his own hand and for his own glory. He said, man's responsibility, what we're called to do, we're called to preach the word and to pray and to look to God to pour out his spirit, right? God is doing all the stuff, as, as Zach likes to say in high academic terms. God is doing all the stuff. We're just called to be faithful, to preach God's word and to pray. And I have Edward's picture there for your enjoyment. And then we flip over uh, and progress a little bit in history to the Second Great Awakening and Charles Finney. Uh, and things go a bit south. Want to know how I know that? Look at his face. Does that look like a man who's about to teach you some good things? No. That looks like a man who's about to kill everything you've ever loved. Look at that guy. That is a crazy guy. Okay, so Charles Finney becomes the leader of the Second Great Awakening, uh, and he is Pelagian, which is a heresy from the early church that Augustine battled against. He believed that man isn't imprisoned by sin and, in fact, can turn to God by his own will. Uh, and more than that, should perfect themselves, right? He believed in Christian perfectionism, this idea that we should become perfect in this life. B.B. Warfield said about uh, Finney, God might be eliminated from Finney's theology entirely without essentially changing its character, which is very true. So Finney, unlike Edwards, saw man as doing all the stuff in this awakening, right? Man is bringing about this revival. So as where Edwards and this kind of first great awakening uh, would say, we are faithful to preach the word and to pray and look to God to pour out his spirit and bring about the revival and eventually the millennium. Finney and the Second Great Awakening rather said, what can we do to produce revival and eventually the millennium? He's quoted as saying, the church, if the church would just do her duty, uh, the millennium would come in this century in three years. If the church would just do her duty, right? And so he instituted these uh, new measures, as he called them, to produce revival at will, right, and bring about the millennium. And one of the things was during these big, highly emotion-based tent meetings where he would just scream and preach, they, uh, he instituted the anxious bench. Uh, if you were particularly worried about the security of your salvation, you can come sit in the front and he would single you out and scream at you to turn to Christ. Uh, we at Parkway actually have that, right? We have an anxious bench. It's not in the front, though. It's just wherever Zach is sitting, right? That's where all the anxiety tends to <laughs> drift. So, uh, so uh, that's Finney, right? So we see this massive shift um, from let's look at what God is doing. The millennium must be close to God can't come back. Jesus can't come back until you bring about the millennium, right? There's this massive shift from God to man through Finney. And with that comes a massive shift from discipleship to conversion, right? So discipleship, deep theology of Edwards and all those guys shifts to, let's just get the numbers going, okay? Altar calls or conversions, that's what we're looking for. And so all the missionaries from the First Great Awakening, great. Theologically trained, going out, translating the Bible, a lot of them, stuff like that. Crazy stuff. Uh, second Great Awakening missionaries trained over the weekend and sent out. You have guys like the circuit riders and very low view of theology. Uh, and this is a time where just a lot of wacky cults and real bad denominations all pop up. Mormons, we get them during the Second Great Awakening, Seventh-day Adventists, stuff like that, that are a direct result of 
Let's just crank through the numbers. Forget about teaching them. Forget all those Jesus stuff about teaching them all that I've commanded. Let's just get them in the kingdom, right? Uh, through our own efforts, there's that massive uh, shift there with Edward Stefani and their kind of post-millennial views. Then uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries, like with most things in the church, we see this split between kind of liberal and conservative. Um, one thing to remember in this heyday of post-millennialism from 17th to 19th century, what other movement is happening in Europe that's very optimistic? Evolution, yeah, the Enlightenment, right? The Enlightenment is happening all throughout Europe where we've kind of broken away from all that God stuff with the church and now through our own reason, we can progress and we can bring about this great society through technological advancements and things like that. That's happening just in the Western world period. So we have this post-millennial optimism in the church and then this Enlightenment optimism all throughout the world. So as liberal theology kind of sweeps through the church, Liberal theologians began to say, you know, I like the uh, optimism of post-millennialism, but rather than just kind of preaching the gospel and hope that man would be converted to God or whatever, we're going to bring about this golden age, this millennial kingdom, this golden age through social reform, right? Social reform. So you have this kind of beginnings of the social gospel and things like that. Um, so Christian morality, we like the morality. So Jesus is kind of where we get the view of atonement that Jesus is just a moral example. He didn't pay for your sins or any of that ridiculous miracle stuff, but he's a great example of a man. So we'll follow Christian morality and then science and technology, and we'll bring about this golden millennial age. But guess what doesn't happen at the end? Jesus doesn't come back because who needs Jesus, right? We've got this great society, and that's kind of the liberal uh, theological roots that kind of take over this one strand of post-millennialism. And then you still have the conservative roots through guys like Charles Hodges, B.B. Warfield, who still believe the gospel is going to go transform people's hearts and bring about the millennium. So in the uh, end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, something happens in the world that basically devastates really the enlightenment optimism in the Western world and then also the popularity of post-millennialism and it's the world wars. The whole world goes to war twice in what, 30 years? I'm not good at math. 1919. A short amount of time. Uh, and so the Civil War already did a lot to kind of damage it in America, the popularity of postmillennialism. But then the World Wars essentially devastate uh, its popularity. And by the end of World War II, postmill has kind of shrunk to a minority view within the church. So uh, post-millennialism today, in academic circles, there was a resurgence at the end of the 20th century. It's very much around. It's not dead, as some people claim, uh, but it is still kind of a minority view within the church. Uh, there's actually a lot of post-mill impulses uh, in a lot of charismatic circles in the church today. I don't think they would say we're post-millennialists, but they have this optimistic perspective that the kingdom of heaven is going to come on this earth through the miraculous. So if you've heard of Bethel Church or any of those circles, heaven invading earth is their like key teaching. We're going to pray for the sick. They're going to be healed. We're going to uh, speak prophetic things, and society is eventually going to be transformed. That's very optimistic post-millennial view. Uh, and then, of course, in liberal churches through the social gospel, there's still this hope of this great society uh, through uh, social reform and tolerance and things like that. Nothing to do with God or Jesus or anything like that, but this idea of a great society through tolerance. So that's post-millennialism through uh, kind of church history. Let's look at some strengths and weaknesses. So I think uh, the first strength is just what we talked about in the biblical argument. I think those are, those are some really good arguments for the case of postmillennialism. Uh, the second strength is a passion and urgency to share the gospel and see the Holy Spirit transform people's lives. There is something to the pessimism of pre-mill and amill that could cause some, not all, but some, to just kind of sit around and wait for Jesus to come fix everything, right? If I have the view that the world's getting worse, um, I can go and I can preach the gospel, but we all know how, where this is going. Our ultimate victory is when he comes back. And so there's a temptation at least to just kind of sit on the sidelines and say, why would I go get creamed when uh, Jesus is going to come back at the end? So there is that temptation. Uh, but post-mills, you don't have that. You have this urgency to preach the gospel with great expectation of its power. Again, when post-mill is the most popular view in the church, missions are just flourishing, right? People are going out all over the world with this hope that the gospel would transform lives. 
Third uh, strength is it doesn't separate Christ's spiritual reign from his reign over every area in our lives. We have this tendency to think Jesus reigns over spiritual things, but not over how we spend our money or how we vote and things like that. We have that separation. You don't really have that with post-mill because it causes you to see him ruling over every area. Uh, And then four, it best explains why Christ has taken so long. It's been 2,000 years. Uh, What's he waiting for? And post-mill gives you a pretty good explanation of what he's waiting for. He's waiting for... Uh, the millennium to come, right? Waiting for the world to be transformed in this golden age. Those are, I think, some of the biggest strengths of the post-mill view. Some weaknesses, uh, just to give some response to the scriptural argument, uh, just because the Great Commission says Christ has all authority doesn't mean he has to use that authority to convert the majority of the world, right? Just because he has authority doesn't necessitate that he use that authority in a certain way. Uh, Similarly with uh, the parables, a lot of the parables are just uh, describing how the gospel will go forth generally, I would say. Uh, It's not necessarily a blueprint for you to interpret Revelation 20. Many of them are describing how the gospel spreads internally, right? Permeating your entire person. Um, A second weakness, uh, I think the strongest case against, is several biblical texts that seem to really say the world's getting a lot worse and there won't be uh, the majority Christians when Christ returns. So Matthew 7, this is Jesus saying, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. And the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Luke 18, Jesus again, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This question that makes it seem like no is the answer. 2 Timothy 3, Paul talking to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, uh, having firmly believed and uh, knowing from whom you've learned it, right? These passages that seem to really say the world is getting worse. Uh, We should not expect this uh, positive trajectory of society. Third weakness, though some post-mills would argue that uh, the world has become more Christian, I think you can make a stronger case that the world is not getting better in the sense that it's becoming more Christian, Uh, Like Zach said last week, there were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than all other centuries combined, right? So if society is becoming more Christian, even if it's a slow trajectory, it would make sense that that would be flipped, right? You would have tons of uh, martyrs in the early church, but then as society trends upward, you would have less and less and less, not more, right? Uh, In the last hundred years, we've also had two world wars, Roe v. Wade, the Holocaust, Khmer Rouge, Stalin, all sorts of stuff like that. So uh, society advances, but then the second that happens, sin floods in, right? So we might have the internet, but then what floods in immediately? Internet pornography or something like that. So there might be these societal advancements, but sin comes in. It doesn't mean that the world is becoming more Christian. Um, It is true that the church does grow in the midst of persecution, but that, again, doesn't mean society becomes more Christian or less evil, Uh, And similarly, when world leaders were Christians, that's some of the time of the greatest immorality within the church, when you do have emperors and people like that uh, that are converted. So in our day, we maybe have eradicated polio, but we also live in the day that says it's okay to desecrate your body if you believe you were born the wrong gender, right? We may have the lowest uh, infant mortality rates in history, but we also live in a culture that celebrates the right to kill hundreds of thousands of unborn babies every year, right? We may be the most literate, the most educated society in history, but we're also seeing the very idea of absolute truth just evaporate before our eyes. I think you can make a stronger case that the world is not getting better. Uh, Fourth weakness, uh, Christ could not come back at any time. Uh, He couldn't have come back during the early church as well. He can't come back at any time because however long you define the millennium, it has to happen first. So Tim taught on how Christ will return a month or so ago, and his first point was suddenly, right? You see that in Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, Christ will come back suddenly, and he can't come back suddenly. If the millennium has to happen first, he can't come back at any time. So those are, I think, some weaknesses to the post-millennial position. 
So let me give some closing thoughts and then we'll have some, uh, some time for questions. First of all, regardless if uh, post-mill is right or not, it does, it does challenge us to go out and preach the gospel with great expectation of its power, right? The arm of the Lord is not too short to save, no matter your millennial view, and we should all go out with this very optimistic view that the gospel is powerful, The Spirit of God does transform hearts and transform lives and turn the worst of sinners to Christ. We should all have this optimistic view of preaching the gospel. Let me read this quote again from uh, Mark Jones. Speaking of the Puritans, uh, the post-millennial views of the Puritans remind us that one of the greatest, or remind us that one of the chief principles of the Christian life is hope. Uh, We must hope that God yet has work to do, and he accomplishes this through the ordinary means of grace and through the preaching of the word. Let us be moved by this great hope of the gospel to join in the great work of promoting the gospel, to go forth, to cover the world as the waters cover the sea, and let us be stirred up to to fervency of prayer. Maranatha, Lord, come. We should all have this great expectation that the gospel is powerful. We should preach the word so that lives are transformed. We can continue to pray that God would pour out his spirit and bring people into the kingdom. And lastly, as we kind of close this mini-series on the millennial views, I just want to remind us again that our hope is not ultimately in a particular millennial view. No matter what you hold, guess what? Christ returns, right? Our Savior is coming back, and that is where we set our ultimate hope. On the day when he returns and he wipes away every tear He makes all things new, and behold, the dwelling place of God will be with man. That is where we set our ultimate hope on him, whether he comes back pre, post, or ah, right? Okay, let me pray for us, then we can have some questions. Father, we thank you for uh, your scriptures. We thank you for the book of Revelation. Lord, we thank you that, uh, again, our hope is set on you, that you are our Savior and our Lord, that you're the one who comes Uh, to make all things new. Lord, that we look to you. You've given us your spirit uh, to assure us of our own salvation, yes, but then uh, to look to the world that doesn't know you, that they might be converted, they might be turned to you, and they might know you. So we praise you and thank you for your word, and we pray in your son's holy name. Amen. All right. Great work, Jared. Okay, a few things. First, before we get into the questions, uh, I wanted to give a quick recap since we've done kind of a three-part mini-series within our larger series on the end times, uh, what all these views uh, hold in common, and uh, some other encouraging words, and then we'll get into the, to the questions. So you need to understand, all of these are legitimate Christian positions. You can hold any of these and still love Jesus and still be a Christian and still have people in church history that have held the same view of you, even the dispensational one. Why? Because God is gracious, right? So uh, you can hold any of these kind of views, be a member at Parkway, and all these kind of things. So you need to understand, this is an in-house debate. It's an in-house family discussion on a minor doctrine. This is not a major thing like the Trinity or resurrection or justification by faith. All of these views believe that Jesus is literally bodily coming back. All of these views believe that we will all be bodily resurrected. All of these views hold that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All of these views hold that there will be eternal life for those that know Christ and eternal conscious condemnation for those who do not. And so on the big issues, they agree. And so this is just kind of an in-house discussion. So I just want you to know what we've tried to do in each lesson is we've tried to give you the pros and the cons and tried to be fair. Say, this is a benefit, this is not a benefit. Obviously, we can't be completely unbiased because we always want to push whatever position we hold. And so, uh, anyway, uh, keep that in mind as you continue thinking about this, if you're wrestling with this in your community groups, whatever it might be. Sermonette over. Now, questions. Doesn't post-mill necessarily delay the return of Christ until the world is better? Uh, but we are required to believe that Jesus could return at any time. How can the surprise, in quotes with an exclamation point, aspect of the return of Christ fit within a post-mill framework? I'll give you just kind of an initial thought, and then I'll, I'll, I'll kick it to you. So the question is, how can Christ come back? How can we have this anticipation to be aware he's coming like a thief in the night? How can we still hold that if a millennium has to happen first? And the simple answer is this, we don't know when the millennium has happened. 
The post-mill position is not that it literally has to be a thousand years. It's just a reign of Christ. Is the world now more Christian than it was? The post-mill person would say yes, so maybe Christ could come today because maybe we've been in the millennium and just haven't noticed it, okay? And so it doesn't, that's not a defeater for the post-mill position. They can hold that he could still come at any time because we don't know when that millennium is sufficiently complete. How Christianized does the world have to be before that counts, and the answer is because we don't know, he could come back still at, uh, at any time. Other thoughts you want to yeah. get on that? So that's what I put as, I think, one of the weaknesses of the post-mill position. Um, again, kind of like Zach said, it all depends on what you hold within post-mill. If you think the millennium has already begun, like in 70 AD or at the Ascension or something, then you would say uh, that the progression of the world becoming more Christian is kind of like the stock market, right? If you look at any uh, immediate two seconds of it, it might be going down, but if you zoom out and look 2,000 years, it has been going up. Um, I really don't know how the stock market works. That might be totally wrong. Um, so, but if you, you think a bear would be strong. Yeah. Right? Okay, keep going. Just keep going. <laughs> and so uh, Jonathan Edwards and a lot of those guys, again, they would probably have to say um, the millennium might be yeah, a month or short or something like that if they're saying it hasn't happened yet. So I think that's how you would get around how long it has to be. Uh, next question. How do those who hold the post-millennial position reconcile their belief that the world will get better before Christ returns with Matthew 24, 37, that says, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. The days of Noah were so wicked, God destroyed all flesh. How does that fit within this system? Uh, what the, so so the, the question is basically, what about this passage in the Bible where it says when Christ comes back, it's going to be like Noah, right? Where everybody's sleeping around and murdering each other and they hate God and all those kind of things. The post-millennialists would say the purpose of that text is not to talk about how bad the world is. It's to talk about the suddenness. So if you look at that passage, what it talks about is what happened in the days of Noah. Everyone was living in sin, and how sudden was God's judgment? It caught everybody by surprise except Noah and his family. And so what they would say is the purpose of that text is not to talk about how evil the world is. The purpose of that text is to talk about the suddenness of it. In the same way that it suddenly happened in the days of Noah, so Christ will come back suddenly and unexpectedly, and there will be resurrection and judgment and these kind of things, not necessarily that the world has to get worse. By the way, just so I can take one more shot at the dispensational position, in that same passage, it talks about how there'll be two people in a field, one will be taken and another will be left. There will be two people in bed, one will be taken and another will be left. And we always think, that's the rapture. I sure hope I'm taken. The problem is, in context, it's talking about being washed away in the judgment floods of Noah. You don't want to be taken in that passage. You want to stay, right? I want to be clinging onto that bed as my wife is floating away, something like that. That's a joke. That's a joke. It's the other way around, really. If, if one of us is condemned, it's not her. Uh, so anyway, that, uh, that's the idea. The idea is that you want to stay. You don't want to be washed away in judgment. So people use that passage the exact opposite because the purpose of that is the suddenness of the judgment, not how bad people are. Anything you want to add? Yeah. So two responses I heard uh, from people who hold to post-millennialism for basically all the passages that seem to talk about the world getting worse and things like that. I'm going to go over to this chart. Excuse me, Zachary. Uh, so the, the view that holds the millennium starts in 70 AD or something like that, they would say this passage, when all the bad, there is the destruction of the temple, all those passages of bad things happening are referring to here, and it does happen. So the Bible is still inerrant, and it happens right here, but then we have this millennium. Another view, if they, start, if they think the millennium hasn't come yet, they would say right here, there's this quick apostasy kind of rebellion before Jesus comes back. Not all post-mills hold that, but that's how you kind of explain some of those passages as well. There's going to be this quick time of rebellion, and then Jesus comes back. You look like a weatherman. Huh? I do? Yeah. 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 The tornado's here, and you're like, that's 300 mile, 300 mile distance. Where's the tornado? Uh, okay, next. I like this one. Chick-fil-A. That's evidence of post-millennialism, by the way. I think we all agree with that. By the way, one of our elders brought donuts this morning because we're doing post-mill day. We didn't have donuts last week. Notice, it's getting better. So we'll have two, two donuts next week. Yes, so now he's committed himself to bringing more and more donuts every week. Uh, 
Okay, Chick-fil-A is, better, uh, is a better Christian business, not because it's primarily Christian, but because it is Christian-run. Is it not possible that God's influence on the world might not require a majority of believers, but a majority of influence? First of all, I think that's a fair question, okay? Uh, I think that in some views of post-millennialism, they'll say the majority of people are Christians. In most views, though, I would say of post-millennialism, that, that don't really answer that question. The question is more that there is a Christian influence. You can still have a strong Christian influence where nations are following God's laws, like even in the Old Testament, and lost people are having to submit to it whether they like it or not. Where I would probably push back on that question is to say, does that really make sense? If if the majority of the world is lost, how much Christian influence can you really have? If the idea is that the world becomes more and more Christianized and the power of the gospel is to save, does it make any sense to say, let's say 80% of people are lost, yet 20% hold a really strong influence in the world? Well, guess who rejects all that influence? the majority of all the lost people. And so I don't know that that argument uh, is as strong as it could be, but what are your thoughts? I think you covered it. That's good. Great. (laughs) Next. Would a post-mill view the scripture about the world getting worse as a truth held within the time of writing, the time of the the original writer, uh, only but not generally? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, again, the... Uh, idea of when the millennium starts comes into play there. So the scholars I've heard today, again, the majority of scholars today hold uh, millennium begun at 70 AD with the destruction of the temple, and most of the description of the uh, destruction is during the day of the original writer. That's what they would say. They say it's kind of like in a relay race when you have a runner who hands a baton to the next runner. You have this, as one person is running, okay, you want to you act this out? <laughs> As one person is running, they're going to hand it off. Stick! There's this kind of period in between where there's this handoff, and that's what they would say the 40 years of the church age in between ascension and the destruction of the temple is, this kind of overlap of the two ages, this millennial age and the end of all these kind of destruction passages and things like that. So that's what they, they would point to. It is applying to the original writers who are experiencing all these different things with the destruction of the temple and things like that. Okay, last, uh, last question, and then we'll pray, and you'll even get out a few minutes earlier today. Again, more post-millennial evidence. <laughs> Somebody said, we have more martyrs, but also a larger population and many more Christians. That sounds like a weak argument. Well, you sound like a weak argument. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me mention two things on this. The purpose of that illustration is not to give a one-to-one correlation of the total numbers. It's to say if things are really becoming more Christianized and have been doing so for 2,000 years, you would expect not hundreds of thousands to millions of Christians to be martyred, okay? Uh, The other thing is to say, if you look at it statistically, even though the world has adjusted for population, there's a higher percentage of Christian martyrs in the 20th century. So in the early church, there's not as many people in the world, but there's not very many people actually getting martyred in the early church. We sometimes hype up the numbers of how many Christians Rome really killed. The numbers were in the hundreds to thousands. When you look at in the, uh, you know, the uh, 20th century, where you have billions of people on the earth, but maybe millions of Christian martyrs uh, happening, the, the statistics are still higher. But I think he's, he's not saying that, here's the evidence, martyrs, that's it. He's using that as one example of when you look at everything bad in the world. How many more people look at pornography now than they did a thousand years ago? How much more adultery is there now than a thousand years ago? How much more abortion is there now than a thousand years ago? How many more martyrs are there now than a thousand years ago? You start to realize it's not just one area, it's pretty pervasive. And so I think that's the point of, uh, of, of that. So, thoughts? That is word for word exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> Jared, you want to you wanna pray for us and yeah. then dismiss us? Okay. Father, we love you. Thank you so much, uh, again, for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for, uh, Lord, just the uh, ability to wrestle through doctrine, to think about uh, what your return will be like and wrestling with the truths of your scripture. So we uh, praise you, ask you for grace as we wrestle through these things, and ultimately that our eyes are always set on you. Lord, that we wrestle through these things with joy and not fear or anxiety or anything like that, Father, but look to you with this great hope, this great expectation. So we pray in your son's holy name. Amen.